good evening, everyone. Um, thank you to Rodney for leading the first part of our service. Thank you to Josh for sharing about um, the Renew Foundation, such an important work there. And thank you to, to the um, musicians and singers for leading us so well in our worship in song this evening. Thank you. Well, in just a uh, minute, we're going to read tonight's uh, scripture passage, continuing in Acts. But first, I want to set the scene a little bit by asking you to exercise your imaginations for a moment. I hope you brought them with you tonight. Imagine this. Imagine that you are a missionary, a church-planting missionary. Maybe one or two of you don't need to imagine because you are that, but most of you will have to imagine. Uh, Imagine that you've been sent as part of a team to a European city which has only a handful of evangelical believers and you're going to help to plant a church, a new church, through evangelism and discipleship. So you go and you spend three years in this city witnessing to the locals, teaching the new Christian converts and the Lord really blesses the work. So that after three years there's a healthy, vibrant congregation with all the structures in place that will allow this church to continue and to grow on its own without any further support from the mission team. And in particular, uh, you've been able to appoint some godly, spiritually mature men to lead the church as elders. Now you sense that the Lord is telling you that your work there is complete and that it's time for you to move on to new pastures. But these people, you, you love them deeply. You've walked alongside them day by day for the last three years of your life. You remember uh, what they were like when you first met them. They were spiritually lost people whose only God was their own pleasure. You remember how their eyes were opened for the first time to see their own sin and also to see the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. And you, you saw them grow into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, they're like sons and daughters to you. But you have to leave them. And you may, never, may well never see some of them again, at least not in this life. So the day of your departure arrives, and they insist that you give them one last message, a farewell address before you go. What do you say? Your greatest desire is that they continue to grow in the Lord Jesus. And your worst fear is that in another three years' time, this church will have withered and died. So what exactly do you say to them? There's so much you could say, so many uh, pieces of advice you could give, but time is limited. You need to focus on the most important advice that you can give them. So what do you say? What do you say? What would you say? Whatever you do, keep on loving each other. Love one another. That's the thing. Or, evangelize or fossilize. Or, keep your worship services lively and contemporary. Or, build a strong children's work. Or, always serve quality refreshments after the service. Well, what parting advice would you give to a fledgling church, advice that could keep it from a premature death? 
Well, in our passage this evening, we'll discover what the Apostle Paul had to say when faced with a very similar situation. And it may surprise you to learn what his priorities were. So please open up your Bibles, I hope you have them, at Acts chapter 20, in verse, beginning at verse 13. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1117, Acts 20, verses 13 through to 38. Let's read God's word. This is Luke giving an account. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we, were get, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. 
Well, before we look at this in uh, a bit of detail, we're going to sing one more song. Speak, O Lord. And let's treat this song as, as a prayer. That... Well, tonight, as I say, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts under the title, The Spreading Flame. And at this point in the series, we're following Luke's account of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. It's sometimes difficult to trace these, uh, these journeys that Paul did in Acts because some parts of them are quite compressed, but we're now on the third journey of Paul. And <clears throat> excuse me, what you see on the screen there is actually um, the second half, as it were, the return leg of this third missionary journey. Now, this morning, uh, Rodney was speaking to us and we heard how after his several years spent in Ephesus, Paul moved on to visit, or in, in some cases revisit, the cities of Macedonia and Greece before his plans were to return to Jerusalem. And on his return journey, he stopped for a week in Troas, where he raised from the dead a young man called Eutychus, who had dozed off during one of Paul's sermons and fell out of a window. Now, um, I have to warn you that I have no such gift of healing, so if you doze off tonight and tumble out of the balcony, you're on your own. Now, after Troas, and we come to our reading uh, tonight's passage, after Troas, we read that Paul's companions went by sea, by ship, to a place called Assos, but Paul made the trip instead by foot. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us why. It's a bit of a mystery, but perhaps, perhaps it's simply that Paul wanted to spend some time alone with God to prepare for what faced him, what might face him on his return to Jerusalem. Then after several other stops, the mission team arrive in uh, Miletus, a city on the western coast of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And here in Miletus, Paul makes an important decision. As we heard last week, he had been forced to leave Ephesus in a bit of a hurry because of a riot that had broken out. He hadn't been able to say a proper goodbye, and there were still things that he wanted to say to the church there. However, to return in person to uh, Ephesus would involve a, a fairly major diversion from this journey to Jerusalem. We're told that he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, probably because he wanted to share in the celebration of that incredible day when the Holy Spirit came down in power on the first disciples. So, instead, what he does, he sends a messenger, a runner, to summon the elders of this church in Ephesus to come quickly to meet him. Uh, in Miletus. And when they arrive, he delivers this farewell address, his last words to the leaders of this fledgling Christian church. And I want to suggest that what he said to that local church in Ephesus in the first century is just as relevant to this local church in Edinburgh today. If I were to sum up his message in one sentence, it would be this. The survival of a church depends on the faithfulness of its teachers. The survival of a church depends on the faithfulness of its teachers. So that's the, the thought. Let's unpack that a bit as we consider this passage under three headings. First of all, Paul's example, then Paul's exhortation, and then Paul's ethos. And I should tell you in advance that the third point will take a lot less time than the first two, for those of you who are getting worried. Please do also have your Bibles open, because we're going to look 
in uh, detail at this passage. And I don't want you to just take it from me. Look down at your Bibles and see what's written there. <clears throat> so begin then with Paul's example. Paul's example, verses 18 to 27. It's striking that Paul begins this address to the uh, Ephesian elders by putting himself forward as an example. An example for them to follow. And the example that he sets is that of a faithful preacher and a faithful teacher. Just uh, look at all the speaking verbs in this passage. You have uh, preaching twice, teaching, declaring twice, testifying twice, proclaiming and warning. And if we look closely at what Paul says about his example, we can see that his example has past and future aspects. In the first place, there is his past example. As he lived among the Ephesian believers and they observed the way that he conducted himself and his ministry. His past example can be summarized as that of a faithful teacher. A faithful teacher. But what does a faithful teacher look like? Well, start in verse 19. Paul says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Paul was both humble and passionate in his ministry. He served his Lord with humility. He didn't lord it over the Ephesians, or they might have done if he was an apostle. I think if I were an apostle, I might have done that. He knew, though, what he had once been. He knew where he came from. And because of his own experience of God's grace in his own life, he conducted his ministry with, as he says, great humility, as should we all. What's more, his teaching was passionate. He taught the Ephesians with tears because he cared for them so much. He didn't stand there and deliver detached uh, academic theology lectures and then go home. Rather, he developed a deep emotional attachment to those that he was teaching week in and week out. Paul was also courageous and selfless in his ministry. He says, I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. He faced bitter opposition the whole time that he was in Ephesus. Josh was just telling us a bit earlier about how his friends there in the Philippines and the Renew Foundation are facing violent threats because of what they're doing for the Lord. Well, the, well Paul knew what that was like. He experienced that sort of thing. Bitter opposition, violent opposition. And yet he continues, you know, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Much of what Paul had to teach was not popular. It wasn't easy for many of those new Christians, given their pagan background, to hear what he had to say. And uh, also his teaching made his opponents furious. And yet he didn't shrink back from teaching what God had called him to teach. And there's a challenge here. There's a challenge here for all Christian teachers, whether it's those in the pulpit or in the Sunday school or, or any kind of, of, of teaching setting. Because at a time when the teaching of the Bible is, is as opposed and ridiculed as ever, well, how tempted are we to water down God's word for the sake of an easier life or an easier ministry? A challenge there. Not only was Paul's teaching courageous, it was selfless. His teaching wasn't based on his own personal interests. He didn't just have his own personal hobby horses, which he trotted out. No, it was based on the needs of others. 
His question was always, is it helpful? Is it helpful, what I'm teaching, is it helpful to these new Christians? If it is helpful, whatever it is, I'll preach it. That's probably a good litmus test for us to apply to ourselves if we're involved in any kind of discipleship. Why is it that we're teaching what we teach? Are we teaching things for our own gratification? Because it scratches where we itch? Or are we teaching for the edification of others? We also learn here that Paul's teaching was both public and personal. Both public and personal. He, He taught publicly, as you would expect, but he also taught, he says, from house to house. On some occasions he he addressed large crowds and other times he met with small groups and with individuals. Paul wasn't the kind of teacher who insulated himself inside a pulpit or behind a lectern. He recognised that an, an effective teaching ministry has to be both corporate and personal. It has to strike a balance between speaking to the church as a body and engaging with individual believers, even though the latter can be time-consuming and often messy. Finally, and most importantly, in fact, Paul's ministry was both gospel-centered and comprehensive. Look at verse 21. How is it that Paul illustrates his claim to have preached courageously and selflessly? He says... I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. A message of repentance and faith. Turning from sin, trusting in Christ. That was his message, and that is the heart of the Christian gospel. All human beings, no matter what their ethnic or religious background, are spiritual rebels separated from God until they turn to God in repentance and faith, turning away from sin and putting their trust in Jesus alone as Saviour and Lord. That is the Gospel. And any teaching ministry that plays down or compromises that, that basic starting point of faith and repentance is not a Christian teaching ministry after all, because it's not gospel centered. Paul's ministry was firmly gospel centered. And yet, at the same time, it's important to see this it wasn't narrow and it wasn't simplistic, it was comprehensive. Skip ahead to verses 26 and 27. Paul says, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated. There again, he has not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. The whole will of God. Now that is a pretty broad teaching program. Hey Paul, what what sermon series are you working through? What's the title? The whole will of God. That would take three years, wouldn't it? At least Well, the centre of Paul's ministry was the gospel, but its scope was all that God had revealed in his word. That is, the whole of the teachings of the Old Testament and of Jesus and of his apostles. We've already seen, haven't we, that Paul's approach 
was to teach whatever would be helpful. I want to teach what is helpful. But follow the logic of that. How could anything revealed by God not be helpful to his people? This is what Paul wrote in one of his letters, also in the New Testament, one of his letters to Timothy, a young man that he later sent to serve as a pastor in this city of Ephesus, same city. This is what he said. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is useful. All scripture is helpful. So what did Paul teach? All scripture. For Paul, a faithful teacher has to be a whole Bible teacher. And that means that once you've started baby Christians on the milk of the simple gospel message, sooner or later you need to move them on to the, to the solid food, the meat, as it were, of the rest of God's word. It's all for them. And it's clear that Paul took this responsibility to teach the whole word of God very seriously indeed. In fact, he implies in verse 26 that if he hadn't done that, he would have had blood on his hands. That's what he says. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. He could have killed people. Not physically, but spiritually. Paul knew that the worst that you can do to a Christian is not to destroy their body, but to destroy their faith by leading them astray in their knowledge of Jesus. And that's why, as we'll consider in just a moment, false teachers are so dangerous to a church. And that's why faithful teachers must be whole Bible teachers. It's not enough just to avoid teaching whatever is false. You must also take great care to teach whatever is true. All of it. Let me try and bring these points as close to home as I can. Two weeks from now, Charlotte Chapel will celebrate its 200th anniversary. I firmly believe that one of the reasons that this church has lasted for 200 years is because God has blessed it with preaching pastors who have been humble and passionate, courageous and selfless, both public and personal in their teaching, both gospel-centered and comprehensive in their pulpit ministry. They were committed to teaching us the whole will of God. Now the time will come, sooner or later, when God will call our senior pastor to move on. And the same goes for both of our associate pastors. I can talk about this because a senior pastor and one of the associate pastors is away and the remaining associate pastor is nodding off down there. (laughs) So, I can say these things to you. But it will happen. It will happen. They will move on. And at that point, the elders will have to seek another senior pastor or another associate pastor, whatever it is. And their recommendation, as they bring a recommendation, will need to be approved by the, the congregation, by the church membership. The final decision lies with you, if you are a church member. So how are you going to make that judgment? What kind of a man will you be looking for? 
what kind of a man will you be praying for? Can I humbly make one suggestion? That you stick a post-it note or something on Acts 20 in your Bible and remember it whenever the time comes to appoint a new pastor. It could be a matter of spiritual life and death. Well, Paul points the Ephesian elders to his um, past example as a faithful teacher, but that's not all. He also points them to his future example, his future example as a faithful preacher, a faithful preacher of the gospel. Verse 22, and now he says, look into the future, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. The Holy Spirit has called Paul to return to Jerusalem, the place where opposition to the church and persecution of Christians was at its greatest. Paul knows it will be very dangerous for him. He might well lose his life. He doesn't know whether he will live or die. But he does know that at the very least he's going to face great opposition, trials, hardships. And yet despite all this, despite all this, he can still say these words, I consider my life worth nothing to me worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Isn't that just remarkable? Is that not remarkable? Some years ago, the American pastor and author John Piper preached a sermon on these verses with the title, Faithfulness is Better Than Life. Faithfulness is better than life. I think that sums up Paul's attitude perfectly. Faithfulness is better than life. Just chew on that statement for a moment. Faithfulness is better than life. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Paul did. And as we know from the book of Acts and from his letters in the New Testament, he lived it out too. When we look at Paul's priorities, look at the sacrifices that he was willing to make, I have to wonder just how serious the rest of us are about living lives of service to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul serves as a model, as an example, to all of us who are called to positions of Christian leadership and discipleship. Well, let's turn now to verses 28 and 32, which I think are really the heart of Paul's farewell address. This is Paul's exhortation. Paul's exhortation to the leaders of the Ephesian church. We're going to look at that exhortation in just a moment, but before we do, I I want us to think just for a minute about the leaders that Paul is speaking to, the men that Paul is addressing here. Perhaps you notice that three different words are used in this passage for these leaders. There's elders, verse 17, overseers, verse 28, and shepherds, also in verse 28. And these three terms really reflect different aspects of one and the same leadership role. Elder, first, points to qualities of spiritual maturity and wisdom. Uh, An elder doesn't have to be elderly in the physical sense, 
Um, I'm tempted to say, but it helps, you know, make that joke. But um, it's not about physical age, but an elder ought to have some, some significant experience of the Christian life and be spiritually well-grounded. Then you have overseer. Overseer is a translation of a Greek word, episkopos, uh, from which we get episcopal church. And overseer is sometimes translated as bishop. Overseer, bishop, same thing. Uh, And that indicates a responsibility for watching and guarding. Watching and guarding a church. Watching out for dangers and protecting Christians from those dangers. And then thirdly, we have shepherds. Shepherds and our word pastor. We speak of pastors. It comes from this idea of shepherding a church. Pastor, shepherd. What do shepherds do? Well, they care for the sheep and they feed the sheep. And so it is with the elders of the church. They have a responsibility to care and to feed. Not to physically feed, they're not there to give you your tea, but to spiritually feed. To spiritually feed you with God's word. So these, these are the leaders that Paul is addressing. Elders, overseers, shepherds. One leadership role that uh, involves various qualifications, qualities and responsibilities. And his exhortation to these leaders is very simple and very direct. Here it is. Keep watch. Keep watch. Or as in verse 31, be on your guard. That is Paul's central message to these leaders of this church in Ephesus. Of all the responsibilities that an elder has, it's the watching and the guarding that he wants to emphasize. But this exhortation raises a number of questions, doesn't it? Keep watch over what? What exactly needs to be guarded? And what's the danger? What's the threat? And where does it come from? Well, the the answers are all here. They're all here. Consider the first question. Who or what needs to be guarded? In the first place, it's the elders themselves. Paul says, keep watch over yourselves. The very first priority for the elders is that they guard their own hearts and minds. They are the front line of defense. If the enemy overcomes that front line of defense, then he's in. The church is exposed. More precisely, what Paul has in mind is that the elders watch over one another. An elder doesn't so much keep watch over himself as keep watch over his fellow elders and vice versa. You watch my back, and I'll watch your back. Secondly, the overseers are to watch over all the flock. All the flock. That is, over all the believers that the Holy Spirit has put under their care in the context of a local church. Now, that's a very solemn responsibility for two reasons. First, the church doesn't belong to the elders. It belongs to God. It is... God's church. Verse 28, Paul says, Be shepherds of the church of God. And not only that, it's a church that he bought with his own blood. Isn't that just incredible? Almighty God became a man, a flesh and blood man, so that he could redeem a sinful people out of their sin with his own blood. That's what he was willing to pay for us. 
Christian believers are a precious treasure to God. And that is precisely why Paul is so concerned that the elders guard that treasure, even with their lives, following Paul's example. Just imagine if the royal family wanted to put their crown jewels on public display so that anyone could come and view them, come and see them up close uh, without any glass or any kind of protection. And suppose that they appointed you to stand beside those jewels and guard them. So there you are, you're standing there as hundreds of people file past one by one, gawping at tens of millions of pounds worth of jewel-encrusted crowns and orbs and bracelets and so on. Would you put your feet up and read the paper? Pop out to Starbucks for takeaway coffee? Just five minutes. You wouldn't dream of it. But in the grand scheme of things, the crown jewels have no more eternal value than plastic trinkets compared to the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. God has put his most precious treasure on public display. And the task of guarding it has been given to pastors and to elders. Isn't it a good thing then that elders and pastors are called by the Holy Spirit, as we see in verse 28, because, let's face it, no one in their right mind would put themselves forward for a task like that. Okay, here's the next question. What's the threat? What is the danger that needs to be guarded against? The answer is in verse 30. Certain people will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. The the danger that Paul is most concerned about is false teaching. False teaching. The danger comes from a distortion of God's word, a distortion of God's truth. A distortion that leads people away from God and away from Christ and away from the gospel of God's grace. We all remember that um, saying from our childhood, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Your parents try and teach you that? Never really convinced me, I have to say. The idea that words can't hurt you could not be further from the truth. Physical attacks can at worst destroy the body. But spiritual attacks through false teaching can destroy the soul. If you lead a person away from the truth, away from the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, then their faith will be damaged or even destroyed. Saving faith has to involve a right understanding of who Jesus is And what he has done. If you destroy faith, you destroy the hope of salvation. It's that serious. And so the greatest danger to a church is false teaching. And that's why when Paul sets out the qualifications for elders in his letters, 1 Timothy, Titus, he says that elders must be able to teach sound doctrine and refute false teaching. That is the danger. One further question then. Where does this danger of false teaching come from? Where does it come from? What Paul says suggests that these shepherds, these overseers, need to be looking in two directions at once. In the first place, there are 
There are threats from outside the church. Verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. There are those outside the church who are set on destroying the faith of Jesus' followers. And the threat today is just as great as it was in Paul's day. Whether it's uh, the new atheists ridiculing belief in God, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons going from door to door with their false gospels, or those liberal bishops on the TV undermining the central doctrines of the Christian faith. Who's going to guard the faith of young Christians when they encounter these challenges? Who's going to address the doubts that arise? Who's going to keep watch? Who's going to keep guard? So there are dangers outside, and they're serious enough. But even more disturbingly, there are also dangers from within the church. Verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. Even from your own number. Now that is frightening. Satan's best strategy is to try to destroy the church from the inside. Why? Because he can do so much more damage that way. Just think about it. Who could do more damage to the church? Richard Dawkins or Rick Warren? A Mormon missionary or Max Lucado? Bishop Gene Robinson or John Piper? Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that they would. That is not my point. They're just illustrations. But I'm sure you see the real point. And that same principle applies even to the leaders in this church. Don't think, don't think that it couldn't happen in Charlotte Chapel. If you've been here any length of time, you will know that we've come close on more than one occasion in the last 200 years. And that is precisely why the elders, the overseers, the shepherds of the church must first keep watch over themselves. They must guard one another. Now maybe you're asking, what does this have to do with me? I'm not an elder or a pastor and I'm probably not going to be one. What does it have to do with me? Well, actually it couldn't be more relevant to you. And here's why. Are you a church member? If so, then in a church like this one, with congregational government, you are responsible for discerning the men that the Holy Spirit has gifted and appointed to lead this church. And so you need to know exactly what their responsibilities are and what kind of men they should be. In 2010, just about 18 months from now, there will be elections in this church for the elders' court. Will you vote for someone just because he seems like a nice guy and because he's been a Christian for 20 years? Or even an elder for 20 years? Or will you consider very carefully both the candidates themselves and what God's word has to say about the qualifications and responsibilities of these shepherds, overseers, elders? Let me tell you, your own spiritual well-being depends on it. If you're not a church member, 
not a member of this church or indeed of any other church, then think about this. The shepherds guard the flock. The shepherds guard the flock. Which flock are you in? Are you in a flock? Who is guarding you? You see, Paul's exhortation just, it takes for granted some basic form of church membership or church association. How does an elder know who his flock are? How does he know uh, who he's supposed to be guarding week by week without some concept of local church membership? If you're not a member of any local church, you're spiritually exposed. You're like a soldier who says, I'm happy to walk alongside the armoured vehicle, but I'm not going to ride inside it. That's not the wisest approach to take. Paul's impassioned exhortation to the elders of the church is this. Keep watch. Keep watch. Guard yourselves and all the flock, the precious blood-bought church of God. Guard against false teaching, both from outside and from within. Well, we've looked at Paul's example and Paul's exhortation. Now, briefly, very briefly, let's consider verses 33 to 35, which set out what we might call Paul's ethos. Paul's ethos. We've seen that Paul's ministry is primarily a speaking ministry. He was a preacher and he was a teacher. But he didn't minister to the Ephesian church with words alone. His words were backed up with what we might call an ethos, a moral character and a personal lifestyle that gave his teaching credibility. And I think that in these last verses of this farewell address, we find Paul reminding the Ephesian elders of that lifestyle to highlight how it supported his teaching ministry. It's as if he says, do you remember how I lived among you? Just think about the way I conducted myself. Do you remember? Doesn't that give credibility to what I've taught, credibility to what I'm saying to you now. And Paul points them to a saying of Jesus, a saying that, interestingly, is found only here in the New Testament, a saying that guided Paul's ministry. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. A faithful and effective Christian teacher must be far more ready to give to others than to take from them. Paul's own application of that principle had two two key elements. First, he worked hard to support himself and his fellow workers so that no one could ever accuse him of teaching for personal profit. He worked hard. And secondly, he showed a particular concern to help the weak. He was involved in what... uh, people sometimes now call mercy ministry, a practical ministry to those in need, primarily other Christians, in fact. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Wouldn't that be a great motto for any church ministry? I wonder whether we should have it printed along the top of the agenda for every ministry meeting, just to remind us what our priorities and our motivations ought to be. And so, Paul concludes his farewell address. And in keeping with his exemplary lifestyle and ethos, he has two final gifts for his friends. 
his prayers and his tears. Verses 36, 37. And those tears are reciprocated. A powerful final testimony to the kind of faithful teacher that Paul had been. Let me draw to a conclusion by comparing Paul's farewell address to another famous farewell address. On the 26th of September, 1796, George Washington's farewell address to the people of the United States was published in a national newspaper. And in this final message to the American people, his last words, the outgoing president made a series of exhortations. Here are four of those exhortations that particularly struck me as I read them earlier this week. And as I read them, try to digest them. First, he warned about the dangers of partisan politics, which can distract politicians from their true responsibilities. He stressed the importance of religious faith as a foundation for morality, decency and trustworthiness in public life. He cautioned against an overgrown military establishment. And he emphasized the importance of stable public credit in the financial system and the need to avoid large accumulations of debt. One might well ask whether some of the social and economic problems faced by the United States today could have been avoided if only Washington's advice had been remembered and heeded. But however important and wise the exhortations of a president of the nation of America, a president of the, of the nation of America, they are nowhere near as important as the exhortations of an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church of God. The survival of a church, the survival of this church, depends on the faithfulness of its teachers. And so my closing question is simply this. How are you and how am I helping to ensure the faithfulness of our teachers and the survival of our church? Let's pray.